morning. It's really nice to be here today on this icy morning. So thank you very much for, for breathing to, to come in. Um, I really appreciated uh, Paul and, and Marcus inviting me to, to come down. In many ways, I think Connecticut Children's is doing a lot, really a national model of how does a children's hospital lean in to how does it make its community healthier. I think definitely housing being one pillar, but really thinking about kind of how do we help children thrive. Um, I work out of a more general hospital, an academic medical center, Boston Medical Center. And I think in many ways, um, how we learn about how to take care of people across the lifespan and really valuing children, I think it becomes a really important part. I think more and more how we make sure that everyone has a stable, affordable home as a prescription for good health, I think is going to be our challenge for this generation. Um, I have, uh, these are my disclosures and I don't have any. So, um, so the roadmap in many ways for me is, uh, I'm going to kind of give an arc to the talk. So I'm going to talk a little bit about all the different dimensions really about how housing impacts health and talk about them not only from quality, but also stability, affordability, location. Those to me are now kind of the four walls, the four dimensions of how housing impacts health. Um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about a home can act like a vaccine. It keeps you healthy now and in the future. Why are vaccines a good value? Why are investing in housing a good value? Um, and then in some ways, as we think about it more and more, we know that hospitals or, or health systems are not gonna become housers, right? How are we gonna build strategic partnerships in order to make that more of a reality? What are the clinical policies? What are the systems or policy level kind of innovations that can happen to make that more of a reality? And then I always kind of end my talks now with this idea of like homes as a route to equity and understanding equity. So let's get started. So I think in many ways, I don't have to convince this audience that the evidence of home quality impacting health is there, right? We're talking about decades, if not centuries of data. Um, I always like to hold out that there are issues around accidents, right? We forget that once you take away motor vehicle accidents, the second leading cause of death for kids are home-based accidents, right? fires, drownings, things like that. And so, and especially as we think about it, it's not just kids' accidents, it's across the lifespan to elders and causing issues. So thinking about ways in which to make sure homes are of state or stable quality become really important. Um, obviously, the development and worsening of asthma is a huge issue, not only around pests, things like cockroaches and mice, but also things around molds and chronic dampness. Um, I bring up tobacco smoke just because 86% of kids, if they're exposed to tobacco smoke, it's in their home. And so being able to think through smoke-free housing policies or other ways in which to create smoke-free homes can have a huge impact. Um, lead has become kind of a new thing we're talking about again, not new in the fact that we didn't know about it before, but different ways, right? Now water is something that is a concern, not just lead paint. Um, and our understanding of it at lower and lower levels, right? I actually, uh, full disclosure, sat on the CDC committee that lowered the action level to five. And so why did we do that? Why was that important? And then thinking about ways in which now we have a whole new public health kind of approach to how we're going to think about it. And then I always like to point out that heat and eat is a real issue, right? For a lot of people, if they're living in a home that's hard to heat, that may be as much of an issue where you're trading off between the heat bill and your food bill. Um, one way that has been, um, I think, a newer area for me in my understanding has been home quality and mental health. Um, this is a study that was done by Rebecca Levine Coley at Boston uh, College where the 
the poor housing quality was the strongest predictor of emotional behavioral problems in the low-income children cohort that they were following. And a lot of that traveled through parental stress, right? Moms were reporting that they were really stressed out about the fact that there were mice and cockroaches and mold in their home. And then they were having parenting behaviors and then their kids were carrying over that parenting behaviors into school. And so in a lot of ways, I think when we think about housing, it is a household level intervention, right? It's not just affecting the kids in the home, it's affecting the parents, the grandparents. It's not just affecting your physical health, it's also affecting your mental health and how to kind of understand all of those dimensions. Um, stability is kind of a, a concept that I think is, I describe as an iceberg. And the reason I'll say is we focus a lot on homelessness and homelessness is really important, but that's the part of the iceberg you can see. There's a lot of iceberg below the surface. And so as we think about it, there's kind of a, a hidden homeless, often many more families or individuals than what are in the homeless counts. They are really housing insecure, and there are groups that are multiple moves. They may move three times in a year, or they may be overcrowded or doubled up. Oftentimes, one of the root causes of housing instability is this lack of affordable housing. And so we recently published in February of this year in pediatrics, um, exploring three forms of unstable housing and its impact on caregiver and child health. Um, this is out of Children's Health Watch. Um, for those that aren't familiar, Children's Health Watch has been around for 20 years, founded by Dr. Deborah Frank and others, really in the face of welfare reform, being very concerned that that welfare reform is going to kind of play out on the bodies of their patients. Deborah was a, is a, a developmental pediatrician and was really concerned about how that would happen and so set up a data collection system in five cities so in Boston Baltimore Philadelphia Little Rock and um, Philadelphia and how we're collecting data is in primary care and, and pediatric ER visits so we do about somewhere between 800 to a thousand interviews in each city so about 4,000 to 5,000 interviews a year so over a five-year period we interviewed about 22,000 families I should make note that we're focused on families with young children, zero to four. We believe that's when you're growing the brain you need for the rest of your life. That's when you're the canary in the coal mine to public policies. You're going to see that play out. And so we asked about housing instability, and we were kind of first kind of shocked about how prevalent it was. 34% of families were reporting one or more forms of housing instability. So the most common was behind on rent. We asked in the past year, were you behind on your renter mortgage? In this case, we were focused on renters, and they said yes, they had been behind on their rent. We also asked about multiple moves. We said, how many places have you lived in the past year? If you reported three or more, we said that you had multiple moves during the year. 8% reported that. 12% reported they were either currently homeless or had a history of homelessness in the child's young life. And each of these circumstances individually was associated with adverse health, right? Not, um, not being developmentally on target, not um, having issues with being in um, fair or poor health, issues with hospitalizations. I think the other thing that kind of shocked us was we looked at the overlap between the three forms, and there was not a lot of overlap. These were individually kind of um, uh, associated with families. 86% of the time, if you were positive for one form, you were only positive for one form of housing instability. So this isn't where it's just one pool of patients reporting a lot of different things. These are each important aspects of child health. Um, I think the last part that was really shocking to us was, um, I think we all know that homelessness affects kids' health, right? And no one would argue for that. But as we stacked up the adjusted odds ratios for behind on rent and homelessness and multiple moves, what you'll see is that the kids who are behind on rent and families that are behind on rent 
look like homeless kids in terms of their health outcomes, right? They're having similar rates of fair-poor health, maternal depression, uh, maternal fair-poor health, food insecurity. In fact, they're showing higher rates of food insecurity, energy insecurity, and healthcare cost trade-offs. And so as you think about it, we all talk about ending homelessness. That is a great goal. But if we are trying to get to the health of children, we're also going to have to end multiple moves and behind on rent. It's a bigger pool of kids that we're going to need to be able to be impacting. Um, the last piece that I just want to kind of hit on in my like very huge uh, um, overview of how housing impacts health is location. Um, I will admit, when I first got interested in housing and health, I got interested in it mostly around quality, right? I had admitted a kid with asthma to the ICU at what was then Boston City Hospital as an intern and was like, what is going on? And ended up finding out that the, the family had recently gotten a cat. Any guesses why they got a cat? Mice. So it was this like eureka moment to me where I was like, oh my God, I have to write a healthy home prescription and that's not stocked at the pharmacy at Boston Medical Center. And friends in, in the housing world would say, oh, you have to focus on neighborhood too. And I was like, oh, I can't, I can't wrap my, my mind around improving neighborhoods. But more and more as we think about it, where we think poverty is the toxic exposure for children in terms of how they're going to grow in development. What this map is, is this is a map of New York City. And I know those in the back may not be able to see. The take-home message of this map is you see the overlap between the black dots, which is neighborhoods that had concentrated poverty, more than 30% of people living below the federal poverty level in these neighborhoods in New York City. And then the bright red, which we'll see is a huge amount of overlap between the black dots and the bright red. That is where 20 years later, you had the same rates of concentrated poverty. So this is a generation of kids that are living with very little exposure to opportunities and jobs and other types of things that are going to be important for their families to grow and for them to thrive. Um, more importantly, we're now mapping things like opportunity. This is a map of the city of Boston, um, uh, courtesy of diversitydatakids.org, which is uh, Dolores Acevedo-Garcia at Brandeis has put together this amazing mapping tool. So you can hop on diversitydatakids.org and be, plug in kind of your um, where you're seeing patients and you can see there the opportunity maps. They actually used an opportunity mapping system developed by the Kirwan Institute at Ohio State, where they look at um, low level opportunity is the light light yellow and then very high opportunity is kind of the dark dark red and so where you can see kind of on the map here is you see kind of downtown Boston Cambridge where my kids live which is Brookline and then uh, you see so sorry this is a uh, uh, downtown Boston Cambridge Brookline where my kids live this is where most of my patients live which is Roxbury and Dorchester and what you can see is um, we actually, um, uh, Renee Boynton-Jarrett, who runs a, a project at a Boston Medical Center called uh, the Vital Village Network, um, what she did is she pulled with her team blood pressure readings for kids at age three. So she pulled them and she mapped the percentage of kids, the prevalence, I should say, of kids that had an elevated blood pressure above the 95th percentile at age three. So the bigger the yellow circle you're seeing here is the higher the prevalence. And uh, what you can see is when you map it, the overlap between low opportunity and higher rates of elevated blood pressure is pretty striking. We actually published this in Academic Pediatrics in uh, 2014 around why neighborhood level interventions are gonna be important to lifting kids out of poverty. And so you see the biologic potential impacts 
of concentrated poverty and lack of opportunity playing out literally on the, the bodies of patients. All right, so I don't have to tell this audience why we vaccinate, right? But I'm gonna do it anyway. So personal protection is really important, right? We also have the concept of herd immunity, right? So you see people that are unvaccinated, those are the blue people, and there are uh, a couple people who are uh, red come into the, the neighborhood and then everyone gets sick. You see when you have a couple of vaccinated people, but most people are unvaccinated, a couple of people come in that are sick. And then you see when most people are vaccinated and you have a handful of people that are unvaccinated, when a couple of sick people come in, the people who are unvaccinated are protected because everyone around them is protected. So this concept of kind of individual and community benefit is something that I think is really important. I don't think we talk about it enough. We talk about how it benefits individual patients. We don't always talk about it how it benefits communities. And I think we know that there's less and less of kind of this herd immunity going on in our country. Um, this is a, an article we published in 2005. So it, it's in uh, Archives of Child and um, uh, uh, Pediatric Adolescent Medicine, which is now JAMA Pediatrics. Alan Myers is the first author. We looked at a vulnerable population in our Children's Health Watch research, which was food insecure families. And we looked at the impact of having a housing voucher on them. And so what we showed was that in food insecure families, those kids, were twofold less likely to be underweight, a Z-score below the fifth percentile, if they had a housing subsidy. If you compared them against families that were eligible for that subsidy, food insecure, and didn't receive it, right? And so as you think about it, right, a housing subsidy was protecting these families from their kids having stunted growth as a result of their food insecurity, right? Um, so why do we think vaccines are such a good deal? And, and I just would remind us that from a cost effectiveness point of view, we don't vaccinate kids against varicella because of the healthcare costs. If you actually look at it from healthcare costs alone, you actually spend $2 for every kind of healthcare cost that you can avert. But when you take into the societal costs, right, for every dollar you spend on a, a chickenpox vaccine, you actually save $5 societally. And so as we think about it, we think it's a good deal because you're going to save on healthcare costs, but you're also gonna keep parents at work. And so as we think about the ripple effect of what say investing in housing does, it helps kids do better in school and, and parents keep jobs and things like that. We have to take into account, there's all this kind of ROI talk about social determinants. And I think we undersell that oftentimes because we don't take into account the societal benefits. Um, so I'm going to shift gears to talk a little bit about population health. I will say I have a love-hate relationship with the term population health. Um, I love it in the fact that I do think it's uh, us as healthcare getting a lot more engaged on thinking beyond the individual patient and starting to think more holistically about our pool of patients, our population of patients, and how we can impact them. I don't love the term because I think it subsumes another term called public health, which has been around for centuries and often has many of the approaches that we need in social determinants of health to be effective. Um, in this case, I talk a lot about when we talk about the population health pyramid, we often talk talk about it just from healthcare risks alone. We talk about utilization patterns, and so we focus on what are high-cost, high-need patients, oftentimes adults and not kids. And we focus on them and we say, oh, 5% of people use 50% of the healthcare dollars. And so we need to trade high-cost services for low-cost 
management. And so we focus all of our efforts on that top of the pyramid. Um, we may spend a little bit of time on the rising risk group the, in order to avoid unnecessary or higher acuity, high cost utilization. And then we, we spend a little bit of time on actually keeping people well. Um, I think there's a similar issue as I kind of alluded to earlier. We focus a lot on homelessness in the housing risk pyramid. We don't focus enough, I think, on housing instability because we say we don't have the resources to do it. How do we keep people in homes? How do we keep people in safe and stable homes, high quality homes? And then we have kind of the people that are in the low risk. How do we keep them stably housed? I think as we think about it more and more, these two pyramids are not isolated. They, they travel together. People have unnecessary utilization oftentimes because of where they live. And so to try and do impact around case management without addressing where they live is not going to be, I think, a great population health strategy. Um, just a couple of uh, kind of data points on this. This is research that we first published in a brief and then was uh, featured in uh, pediatrics in September, was looking at compounding stress, the timing and duration of homelessness on the impact of children. And so in this case, we were looking at, in our, in our data set, we can actually ask people about the prenatal period. Was the child homeless during the prenatal period? Are they continuing to be homeless during the postnatal period? Were they homeless in both periods? And so what you can see here is that uh, the red bar is where people were prenatally homeless only, right? And you can see there's a 44% increased risk of being in fair or poor health. And I should just say that this is for child health, right? We have previously published that if you are homeless during the prenatal period, yes, you're more likely to have a low birth weight baby or a premature baby. But in this case, we adjusted for those birth outcomes and you're still seeing a persistent increased effect of kids being in fair or poor health during their childhood, even after we control for the birth outcomes. Um, I think that you can see a similar effect in terms of 41% being in fair or poor health, that they're just homeless in the postnatal period, and then this huge 99% being in fair or poor health if you're in homeless during both periods. So this suggestion that timing matters, right, even if you're homeless in the pronatal period, that still will carry over into child health and that the duration matters. The longer that you're homeless, that can be impactful. And you can see an increased risk, not just in fair or poor health, developmental risk as measured by the PEDS, but then also about child hospitalizations. Um, we also looked at duration in the postnatal period, and what you can see is kids under a year are more likely to be in fair or poor health if they're homeless more than six months of their young life. And you can see this huge risk of fair or poor health, 250% increased risk, 118% increased risk of developmental delays, and then uh, increased risk of hospitalizations. We tried to put a number on this, and so we ended up coming up with that. It's $238 million of avoidable hospitalization costs related to homelessness if it was in the prenatal or postnatal period. A lot of the cost is in that first year of life, $132 million, but $100 million is, is in years three through uh, one through four. And as we think about it, this becomes important because as you get into more value-based contracts where you're trying to avert, trying to be able to make the case that this is actually good business as much as it is being the right thing to keep Keats stably housed becomes important. I think 
even the last part of the slide before I want to open it up for questions is we more and more are not just thinking about our patient population, but we're thinking about our geography of our patients. So again, Boston Medical Center is not just a, a kind of a, a children's department. We actually do serve across the lifespan. We actually have been focused on our high-cost, high-need patients, which for us is the top 3% of patients. Um, the top 3% of patients use 40% of the dollars. And I think I realize that in um, Connecticut, there's uh, talk about value-based payments. You're in some value-based payments, but in Massachusetts, particularly even in Medicaid, we are now fully in value-based payments right now. What does that mean? That means that we don't get paid on a service-by-service -service basis. We get a lump sum of money to manage our patients. And if we're able to manage them well, we can potentially make break even or make a little bit of a profit. But if we don't manage them well and they come back to the hospital, we lose money. Right? And so it's motivated us, I think, much more to be able to start to look at homelessness as an impact that our hospital may need to lean into. The other piece that was interesting is we took the pool of the top 3% patients and then we said, where do they live, right? And what came up was there are five zip codes right around our hospital where 40% of those high cost, high need patients live. Um, for those that are familiar with Boston, it's 02128, which is South End, 02129, which is Roxbury, and then three Dorchester zip codes, 02121, 02124, 02125. And so for us, it became, okay, we have to think about impacting patient health, not just on the individual level, but potentially on the geographic level. How do we start to do this? How do we start to map need and start thinking about not just on the home, but on the neighborhood? And so we actually have started to create housing partnerships around that same map. So around areas, working with Pine Street Inn, one of the leading homeless providers, working with local community development corporations, Dudley Square um, and Madison um, uh, Park, which are in the Dudley Square neighborhood of um, uh, Roxbury. You can see where Boston Medical Center is there in the, in the heart. And then uh, around uh, Franklin Field in the community builders and then Fields Corner area of neighborhood with Codman Square. Um, we have committed $6.5 million for our housing initiative through a, a program called Determination of Need. Um, in a lot of different parts of the country, it's called Certificate of Need. It basically means when you put up a new tower um, on your hospital campus, a certain percentage needs to go into community health initiatives. We actually went to the Department of Public Health and we think, said, we think affordable housing is actually the leading health need in our community. Will you let us use these dollars to invest in housing partnerships? I want to be clear, Boston Medical Center is not building their own housing, right? We're not becoming a landlord. We are investing in housing organizations, in partnerships, as a way to try to understand how can a health system and a housing partner together, not just to create more stable homes, but to improve health outcomes. How do we be, create that, that cross-sector partnership to be effective? Um, we also wanted to do it in a way, people have asked us different questions like, why did you do only nine partnerships? Why didn't you do 20? And we said, no, we wanted to apply a certain amount of dose to these partnerships to understand them. Um, the other piece that was interesting for us is we said, well, let's, um, let's not do it all in one project, right? Let's actually think about it and think about different types of partnerships. And so in this, we actually coupled our partnerships together to have different ideas. So one of them is very housing project specific. So in this case, we went to two different um, community development corporations and said, what's your pain point? What's the thing you would love to have money for? Um, and so for Nuestra Community Data, it was interesting. They were building a new building. 
the first floor was going to be open. They wanted to have a healthy grocery store there and they couldn't attract a healthy grocery store because of financing. The healthy grocery stores had a hard time getting financing because whether or not there still is a uh, history of redlining, it was hard for them to get a loan from the bank without it being a really high interest loan. And so we said, you know what? We'll give a no interest million dollar loan to help with attracting a grocery, a grocery store. We're gonna theoretically get repaid from this. So for us, it's gonna be our foray into investing as a way to get healthier retail options for food for our patients in the 02119 zip code. Um, differently, we, Codman Square said to us, we just got a building out of foreclosure, it's falling apart. It has 35 units in one of the building. We can only rent 20 of the units because the other units can't pass code. Will you help us with the renovation so that those units can now be rentable? We can get more affordable housing in the community. Um, the other ones were said to us, we need to fund support services on site. Won't you help us with putting a nurse or a community health worker on site at a housing development? Other ones said, we have a great model in Chicago, that was the community builders, and said, but we want to bring it to Boston. Will you give us money to hire our own worker to do it? So we've testing different models where we're sending BMC staff onto one housing development, and the other one, we're giving money to the housing organization to hire their own staff. Um, we also are dealing a lot with transitional housing, working with Boston Healthcare for the Homeless and Pine Street. And then we're working with Boston Housing Authority. We said to them, what's your pain point? And they said, we get these reasonable accommodation requests. Many of you write those letters to the housing authority saying, can you please pull up a carpet or, or do certain types of things? And they said, but we don't have the money to do it. So we actually gave them money for a reasonable accommodation fund so they can fast track those doctor reasonable accommodation requests. I think what's important is we're doing some of the money through a community engagement process and we're actually giving, um, uh, doing, it's called the Innovative Stable Housing Initiative where we're going to say to the communities, what do you want to do? What do you think are the good ideas? And in that, we put a million dollars aside. Boston Children's actually matched our million dollars and now Brigham and Women's is going to match it at $750,000. So it's a way that hospitals can start to work together. And then last but not least, we invested in an equity fund called the Healthy Neighborhood Equity Fund. What I will joke a little bit is when I first uh, heard of the Healthy Neighborhood Equity Fund, I was like, this is great. You're talking about health equity. No, they're talking about a financial product, right? An equity fund is an actual like thing you invest in. And I was a pediatrician and I didn't understand that. But it's, it was great to go through the process of how do you get the finance committee and the investment committee and the board of a hospital to sign off on investing in cre creating more housing. What does that look like? How do you go through that process? And so we walked through that as part of our initiative. Um, so last but not least, I just wanna talk about some of the strategies to impact patients, many of which you guys are already talking about. I think screening becomes really important. Um, and I think that while it sometimes can be hard to screen for things that you may not always feel like you have impactable, you guys are leading the way with amazing models, Help Me Grow and others about having that, that response available. We developed a tool based off of the great work of um, Arvind Garg, who works at Boston Medical Center, trained here, um, uh, the We Care model. We adapted it and now we call it Thrive. And what it basically is is an idea where we built an electronic medical record platform where we're able to be able to make it very easy to do this process. What we end up doing is handing out a survey to our patients that has uh, eight domains that are covered, 10 questions. Um, we do two questions around housing, two around food insecurity, the hunger vital sign that Children's Health Watch helped develop. We ask about 
problems with medications, problem with transportation, problems with heating or electricity bill. We ask also about, do you, uh, do you want help with looking for a job? And do you want help with getting more education? Um, and those are really important because we want to try and move more and more upstream to get people to places where they're not having these hardships. Um, what's interesting is that we do it where the medical assistant actually um, put, uh, takes the piece of paper, logs it into a workflow sheet within uh, Epic, and then this is the key, this is the, the kudos for um, uh, our IT specialists, is that once it's logged into the system, it automatically generates ICD-10 codes associated with the hardships. And so all the physician needs to do is to click the sign button. It's a one-click system where then it automatically prints the resource lists in order to help people in the community, and it automatically loads the ICD-10 code onto the bill. I should say the only ICD-10 code that we're getting reimbursement for right now is homelessness, but it helps us in the future to be able to do social risk adjustment to justify that our patients often have two or three unmet needs and therefore may have worse health outcomes, may not have a difficult time meeting some of the quality metrics that we're being graded on. And so it's a one-click system to be able to do it. If um, uh, being able to understand, it, I just want to give kudos to Stephanie Losi and Pablo Butron de la Vega who helped develop it. Um, and just to give you a sense, Justin, this is actually a little bit out of date. We screen now over 60,000 patients, but when we pulled the data um, uh, from September to March of last year, it was about 22,000 patients. What's interesting for us is that job training and education become really important things that our patients want. And so while we have an on-site food pantry and we've focused on that as an issue and we're developing now our housing resources, it also has said to us, we need to develop an education initiative. We need to develop a job training initiative. And again, not that we're gonna do that, but how do we create those strategic partnerships in the future? Um, it's made us think a lot about housing stability and ways in which we can assess it. So we kind of have proposed almost like how can you assess patients to know that they're uh, having issues. And so being able to do kind of just a, a housing stability checkup, a vital sign. Was there a time in the past months where you had difficulty paying the, the mortgage or rent on time? You're at risk. There may be ways to intervene in order to make that better. Um, how many places have you lived? Again, understanding that it may be hard to solve that, but you may do different follow-up if you knew somebody had moved moved twice in the past year, or was there a time you didn't have a steady place to sleep or stayed in a shelter? Again, we know that's at risk for developmental delays. What are ways in which we can try and create more stability in kids' lives to help them thrive? Um, I'll just highlight the fact we published this in, in JARC, the Journal of Applied Research for Children, a couple of years ago. People often say, it's hard to solve housing stability, Megan, and I'll say, you're right, but co-enrollment sometimes in other programs can actually lead to housing stability. So in this case, we actually showed that if you enroll people in WIC and SNAP, you actually are able to see increased rates of housing stability, um, particularly if it gets paired with a, a housing subsidy, but if you lose the SNAP benefit, you actually Actually increase the housing instability even if you still have the housing subsidy. So I think this idea of getting someone something to help them meet their bills does actually impact housing stability as well. Um, I will just highlight the fact that a lot of these social determinants of health strategies are ones that, that really are about prevention. And I want to highlight the fact that in many ways when we talk about high cost, high need, that really is tertiary prevention, right? That's people who are sick, that have hospital-based treatment, that are trying to have issues and may have issues related to homelessness, and we're trying to reduce utilization. 
I think more and more we are going to have to move towards issues of secondary prevention and primary prevention. And this is where we have to start thinking about what are the supportive services that we can use with that rising risk group, that group that is starting to show signs that they're going to have excessive utilization. How do we try to intervene in them and set up models to detect them? Um, and then ultimately around primary prevention. Uh, the reason that I bring this up is that I work not in a, a hospital that's focused on kids all the time. And so being able to try and, and like target arguments that are going to be able to not just talk about now utilization, but future utilization is part of it. And so as we have started to think about it, it's kind of a, a housing 2.0. As we start to target on these neighborhoods, we have an initial investment of our dollars to try and build housing partnerships. We know that's a drop in the ocean of what the need may be. So how do we start to do these zip code based approaches to trying to look at housing stability? Um, it is going to be about the care of the top to 3%. That's going to be where we're going to make potentially be made or broken as an ACO and as a health system. So we have to focus on them. How do we get housing stability? Because our research says that any disease you choose, if you're homeless, you have on average about $20,000 more a year of utilization. So how do we start to think about what that looks like? We have that addressing the rising risk. How do we start thinking about it? And then ultimately, how do we build a path to wellness so that we're able to do it? And so being able to have that, that tiered approach, this is the different population health pyramid where you're not just picking one layer of the pyramid, but you're trying to do a comprehensive approach across the lifespan. Um, I think as we talk about kind of the proverbial stream, right, a lot of what um, healthcare system has to do is focus on disease and injury and being able to solve that. That's what we're designed for. But that ultimately can be a downstream approach where we are intervening clinically. I think more and more we want we have to do that. But how do we then move upstream and start to think on multiple levels, be able to address where people live, be able to do cross-sector collaborations, and be able to address social determinants of health on multiple levels. Um, I think people are going to say, this is great, Megan. Where are you going to find the money for this, right? So, um, and I'm seeing some head nodding with that. So I think what's been interesting for me is that this has been something that more and more, there are ways to start to think about social determinants in the healthcare space, as well as thinking about investing on the policy level to address in social determinants. Um, this is a marketplace article featuring United Healthcare. Um, United Healthcare actually invested in an affordable housing fund. Um, they actually have done $250 million of investments, and they actually did, if you can believe it, a mortgage for an affordable housing development in uh, Tucson, Arizona, where they basically gave a very, like a 1% interest mortgage um, to be able to help a housing developer buy and renovate uh, a housing development. What's interesting is that they're not talking about their foundation. They're talking about their health insurance dollar. They're talking about the capital that they have raised. And that is where they're saying this is a good business model for them. They, and believe me, insurers do actuarial analyses. They know what is a good investment. And they're saying this is a good investment of an insurance dollar moving forward. Um, more and more, there are ways in which to think about can Medicaid cover some of these costs? This is a New England Journal article featuring what was done in New York State, where what they did is they 
they were able to provide some of Medicare savings towards funding new housing, towards doing rent subsidies or other things in emergency situations. Most recently, Alex Azar, our HHS secretary, uh, talked about should Medicaid rethink about ways in which to provide housing. And so it's not to say that I think Medicaid should be writing a rent check. I want to be clear. I actually am not sure that that's the right thing in, in many cases. But as we think about where dollars are, let's be honest, we are housing certain patients. We're just housing them on an inpatient ward at a very expensive rate. When we, if we were able to free up dollars, we could renovate their home and be able to make them healthier. So how we start thinking about that in value-based models becomes really essential. Um, I think that just one example of what has been done in Boston is where Boston Housing Authority looked at some of the research around prenatal homelessness and wanted to try and create a model to try and intervene with high-risk moms at risk for, for having premature babies and really thinking about it as an infant mortality intervention. And so what they did is they said, we're willing to fast-track women into housing programs if they have the services provided. So the public health department said, great, we have Healthy Start financing, we're gonna be able to provide really intensive services, mental health services, prenatal services, postnatal services, and so they were able to fast track housing unstable, high-risk pregnant women into housing. In and they're actually doing it in a randomized controlled trial. And what they're actually showing is that they are able to reduce <coughs> premature births. They are able to reduce low birth weight births. And this is where you're really aligning two resources together for better synergies. All right, so the last slide I'll do before I open for questions, so start thinking about your questions, is um, kind of equality doesn't mean uh, equity. Um, and so I like to use this slide just because I think in a lot of uh, situations we fight for equality for our patients, right? Um, but I think in many ways, when we acknowledge kind of where people start from, sometimes equality is not enough. And so uh, for those that uh, either can't see the slides or are on the podcast, picture kind of the three-heighted people, right? You have um, people that are very tall, and if you give them one box to stand on, they can reach that apple of opportunity on the tree. Um, you have the medium height people where if you give them one box to stand on, they get a little bit closer, but they're not reaching it. The person who's short, um, they stand on one box and they get closer, but they're still pretty far away. When you shift to the side of equity, the tall person gets one box and they get to the apple of opportunity. The medium height person gets two boxes and they get to the apple of opportunity. The short person gets three boxes and they get to the apple of opportunity. They all get there. And the reason for that is that they got what they needed to get there. But the tension in that is that you have to treat people unequally. Equity is about unequal treatment. And the reason is, is because people didn't get to be different heights by accident. Systems created these disparities that we are measuring. And the only way to undo them is to do unequal treatment and to give some people more and to be okay with that and to think that that's a good investment. And I think that more and more as we talk about equity, there's no greater equity in many ways than low-income kids, right? And, and I think that as we kind of be able to talk about it, I say, I don't want to act like housing, and housing is my baby. I, I say, if there's a hammer, uh, you know, housing, or housing's my hammer, everything's a nail. But I will say this, that, that to an extent, I think it's the foundation. It's that first box, right? Sometimes you need more things on top of it in order to create a healthy childhood. 
but in a lot of ways, a stable home, if you don't have that, nothing else works very well. Your education program doesn't work. Your, your health program doesn't work. And so for me, being able to have a stable home, a stable, affordable home is that prescription for good health. I think we as the healthcare sector need to get into this game of trying to make sure that that happens, both on the individual system and policy level. And I'm just really excited to be here today and to be able to talk more with you. Thank you very much.